Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of Cavalier Cast, The Civil War in Words. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Andrea Zuvik, historian and author of six books, both fiction and non-fiction, all set in the Stuart period. Andrea is a historian and anthropologist and is a historical consultant for TV, film and radio. This is the second of a two-part podcast about Queen Henrietta Maria. Andrea will look at Henrietta's life after the execution of King Charles I in 1649 and her period of exile in France, as well as the restoration of her son King Charles II in 1660 and her death in 1669. As a reminder, in part one, which was released two weeks ago, Leander Delisle discussed Henrietta's life mainly up until 1649. If you missed that one, all of the previous episodes are available to catch up on. So without further ado, welcome to Cavalier Cast, Andrea. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Just a little bit about yourself first. So you're known online as the 17th century lady. So can you tell me a little bit more about your Stuart's Saturdays? Yes, uh, Stuart Saturdays is a weekly event sort of thing that we do. I propose a different topic each week and anyone is welcome to join in and contribute something related to the post topic. And we have uh, We've seen a wonderful community develop as a result of this, and it's it's so lovely to see the enthusiasm every week for this Stuart Saturday. And I called it Stuart's Saturday because originally the hashtag was Stuart Saturday, which I would have preferred, but uh, there was another another person using <laughs> Stuart Saturday oh. for something totally different and um, something not really appropriate, if you know what I mean. And oh, <laughs> topless men and, and uh, other sort of things that weren't really related to the uh, Stuart period. So I've had to put on an extra S and yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, they are great. I mean, they bring together quite a lot of people, celebrate the Stuart age and, and the scope and, and the difference of what people bring. They all bring their own aspect to the to the topic that you choose. It, it's fantastic. Yes, I think we, we have a wonderful community and just it's so exciting to be part of that. And and everyone's been such a good sport. So it, it's lovely. And what was it that first triggered your, your interest in the Stuart era? I would have to say William Shakespeare. When I was a child, I loved his stories, and I I read them uh, the the complete works by age thirteen, maybe twice, and I really loved him. And his um, his writing was so wonderful. And from there, I sort of went into other uh, Jacobean literature, and the Ben Jonson and and uh, then I got into the the Cavalier poetry and metaphysical po- poetry and John Donne, of course. Oh, my gosh, John Donne. Yes. Oh, that really moved me. And so it was really the literature, the art, the fashion, the whole, the whole aesthetics of the period. It was just so beautiful and it moved me profoundly. And, and I've been in that zone ever since. You've written six books so far about the Stuart era, and we'll talk about them uh, later in the podcast. I suspect Henrietta Maria will have cropped up somewhere in the research for those. How would you describe her character? 
Well, she was uh, an amazing, formidable lady. And um, I uh, I think that's quite funny. Uh, she she actually reminds me of, of my own mother. <laughs> um, my my mum is, is quite small and um, feisty. And and so I, I think of her as um, as a sort of powerful perfume packed inside a little bottle. That's how I like thinking of her. I'm, I've got a lot of um, warmth. That, that's that's a great description. I like that. <laughs> so so we're going to be talking about the life of Henrietta, um, focusing on her exile um, and then post restoration. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think there was a power struggle between Henrietta and her eldest son, Charles II, during their period in exile? Yeah, I I wouldn't say so, no. Uh, Henrietta Maria appears to have been much more hands-off Charles than she was with her younger children. I mean, his his character, do you think he was, he was very much like Henrietta's father, King Henry of France? Yeah, I think there is quite a, a similarity between between them. And I think, unlike the case with her daughter, Minette, who were Henri Etan, I think there was a bit of a, a gender differentiation there, because I don't think she would really tell Charles what to do as much as she'd tell the, the girls. Um, and, and I mean, Charles, I suppose, is, is separate, isn't he, really? Because he is now the, the, the king of England, Scotland, indeed. Ireland. Do, do we know what Henrietta thought about the birth of Charles's illegitimate son with Lucy Walter? Um, that was in Rotterdam in 1649, literally just nine weeks after King Charles I's execution. Yes. Well, talk about different uh, different emotions, that the, the, the two complete opposites there. Um, not a whole lot is known about Henrietta Maria's initial thoughts about that. But given that she was so staunchly re- religious, the fact that this child was born out of wedlock couldn't have sat well with her views. But um, as a recent biographer of hers, uh, I think Dominic Pierce, wrote, quote, she was unfazed by the foibles of kings, unquote. So sexual improprieties were part of the course even if she and her husband were known for their sexual fidelity and for the moral tone they set during their their reign. So she knew about human nature. Mm. Um, but James's birth made her a grandmother for the first time, and, and this must have brought her some sense of happiness in the midst of her extreme grief following her husband's killing. Um, later on, however, we do know that Henrietta Maria seems to have doted upon young Jemmy, um, who later became the Duke of Monmouth, and uh, was observed with him on several occasions. That's a nice um, aspect to it, isn't it? Yeah, so I think yeah. uh, um, there was sort of a myriad of uh, emotions there, good and bad, but uh, ultimately the good overcame any uh, any questions she might have had. I mean, I suppose nine weeks after King Charles I was executed i mean at that point she mustn't really have been concerned about much that was going on outside of how she was feeling mm-hmm, indeed it was a very terrible blow for her and then there was also the secret marriage of james duke of york her second son to anne hyde the daughter of the chancellor mm-hmm. um, do you know how she reacted to that <laughs> well she was absolutely livid about this <laughs> Uh, 
<laughs> we know that Henrietta Maria had very strong opinions about all sorts of things, but uh, this situation was personal, it was about family, and this was a union between a commoner and a prince, and it was completely unsuitable in every respect. And for one thing, uh, Henrietta Maria detested Clarendon, who was Anne's father. And to top it all off, in choosing Anne, James was, in effect, throwing away a potentially extremely useful marital alliance with another nation. So she had one less pawn to use, and and that was not good. <laughs> um, yeah, each one of Henrietta Maria's children was expected to go along with whatever politically advantageous marriage was deemed necessary. Uh, James's eldest sister, Mary, had been married off to William II of Orange, for example. Um, so for duty, for her family, Mary had been joined to a man and ended up having a rather unhappy time of it. So when she found out about James's entanglement with Anne, she was not happy. Uh, because Anne was one of her ladies-in-waiting, so she was both disgusted and enraged as well. Uh, none of the siblings were happy about this attachment, and even James himself started to regret the whole thing and tried to get out of it, and um, later some of his mates, Charles Barclay and Harry German, lied and said that they had had sexual relations with Anne. Mm -hmm. But, of course, this was totally untrue. But uh, yes, uh, James and Anne were married in secret a few weeks, just a few weeks before their son was born. So very narrowly um, missing out his becoming an illegitimate child. But uh, he sadly died. But, but this couple, they went on to have several children, including Mary, who later became Mary II, and Anne, who later became Queen Anne. I mean, as you say, she would have seen that as uh, James throwing away a, a huge chance. But it leads quite nicely on to, to Henry. She brought quite intense pressure to bear on him to convert to Catholicism, despite the, the, the little lad's promises to his father, Charles I, um, before yeah. the king was executed, that he would never um, convert. Yeah, so, well, oh, poor Henry Stuart. Uh, he, along with his sister Elizabeth, were... Um, pretty much held captive in two places, including Carisbrook Castle. Um, but sadly, his sister died in her early teens, but he was then later released by Parliament and was able to rejoin his family. And uh, he lived in the palace of Saint-Germain-en-Laye with his mother, Henrietta Maria, his brothers, Charles and James, and, and Henriette, Henriette Anne, who we will call Minette, going on. Um, there, Henrietta Maria decided to convert him to Roman Catholicism by sending him to a Jesuit college and having a priest go and speak with him. And she had lots of things set up to try to convert him. But um, Henry was pretty staunchly Protestant. And in his last meeting with his father, Charles I, shortly before the king's execution in 1649, he and his sister promised to stay true to the Protestant faith. Fast forward to his mother's attempt to convert him in 1654, Charles II was irate, and he wrote to Henry, quote, It is the Queen's purpose to do all she can to change your religion, 
which, if you hearken to her, or to anybody else in the matter, you must never think to see England or me again. End quote. So he continued in that letter saying that to convert would be, quote, be not only the cause of ruining a brother who loves you so well, but also your king and country, end quote. So at the end of the letter, uh, he urges Henry to remember the last words of your dead father. Uh, Henry eventually refused to acquiesce to his mother's demands, and a terrible row ensued. Horrible things were said, probably by both. Um, but Henrietta Maria sent him packing and told him she never wanted to see him again. And she didn't. He died in 1660 from smallpox shortly after the restoration. So it was, it was a really sad situation all around. Yeah, it's tragic, isn't it? L literally passes away just after the restoration of the monarchy, which they've all waited so long. Indeed. For, it's really you know. tough, very tough, because, of course, you have this, especially in the 17th century, you had this duty to your family, to your parents. and uh, But also his brother is now, in effect, the king, and so he also has a duty to his king. So he was put in a very impossible situation. It's interesting, isn't it, the, the different opinions, I suppose, that Charles II and Henrietta had about Henry's future. That would, that was exactly what she was trying to do with, with her other children. She needed to have uh, them as political alliances, and the best way to do that was through marriage. And seeing as how many of the European nations were at that time Catholics, Spain and Portugal and and France, um, this this makes sense. It makes sense that in, in that way she would like him to be, she wanted him to be a Catholic as well, to make those alliances more appealing in some respect. But it was also about saving his soul because she was so devoutly Catholic and she genuinely, I believe, wanted his salvation in the afterlife. Uh, and did she did she make any attempts to convert any of the other children? The others, like uh, the Duke of York, oddly enough, he was one of the people who urged Henry to ignore and resist Henrietta Maria's attempts to convert him. So this is this is very interesting because he, of course, later becomes Catholic, setting about what we call the Glorious Revolution and ultimately the succession. Uh, of the Stuart line. So, um, yes, the, this question of religion is, is very important in terms of political marriage, but also for saving Henry's soul. Yeah, yeah, two very important points, I suppose, for, for Henrietta. So, and, and then just for listeners, so if we'll just recap on the, the children there. So we've got Charles II, um, we've got Mary, who, as you say, married the Prince of Orange, um, then we've got James, Duke of York, and we've got Prince Henry, Duke of Gloucester. Yeah. And then we've got the, the youngest child um, of Charles and Henrietta, which was Henrietta Anne. You mentioned there as well that James, Duke of York, did convert to Catholicism in the end. Yeah. Um, and that led to the Glorious Revolution. Do you think that stemmed in any way from uh, Henrietta? Yes, I do think so. I mean... Uh... 
how often do we even now hear of someone who had a parent of a certain religion and then the child as an adult later gravitates towards that same religion? I mean, it can be said that there is a con a comfort and a continuity to be had in following the same religion as one's parents and ancestors. What were her designs for her youngest child, Henriette Anne? Because um, King Charles I uh, allowed Queen Henrietta to bring up Henriette in the Catholic religion from, from the start. Yes, well, uh, Henrietta Maria's relationship with her daughter, Henriette Anne, um, or Manette, um, was quite different from that which she had with her other children. Um, Minette was, of course, the youngest, her little baby, and uh, she had spent more time with her mother in France and worshipping together in the Catholic faith. Uh, in a letter to Madame de Motteville, um, Henrietta Maria referred to Minette as my other little self. They had been through a lot together. Um, Henrietta Maria had been forced to leave her infant in Exeter, and that must have been terrible, uh, and was unable to see her for a couple of years until Lady Dalkeith was able to smuggle her out of England and into France. Uh, mother and daughter were okay until around 1648, but then they started facing economic hardships. Uh, I think it was the Cardinal de Retz who visited them and found them in 1649 uh, and found them in, in a pretty bad situation. And he said, posterity will hardly believe that a queen of England and granddaughter of Henri IV wanted firewood in this month of January in their house. So they went through a lot together. And so she became a very special child to Henrietta Maria. She was only three when her father was executed. So I think it was her innocence and her, probably a her childish sense of fun that really comforted her mother at that awful time. Mm. Yes, indeed. I think she saw Minette as the child whose life she could try to mould as best as she could, uh, especially as she'd been denied as much with her other children due to the civil wars, etc. I think it's really sad and tragic that despite all of her efforts uh, that Henrietta Maria took for Minette to make her have a, a good life, the eventual match with the Duc d'Orléans proved to be an unmitigated disaster. Um, his jealousy and control over her just made her life miserable. In turn, she had to gravitate to others for love, including Louis XIV and the Comte de Guiche, apparently. Um, so it's it's a mercy that um, Henrietta Maria was spared the death of her youngest, probably uh, her, her favourite child. I know we, people shouldn't have favourite children, but I think they just had a, a much better carry-on together. And I, it's uh, it's nice in a way that she, that Henrietta Maria was spared from seeing Minette's death, especially in those very controversial circumstances where there were rumours of poison and all that. So, mm. so that was a mercy, really. We've spoken about some of Henrietta's children there, but now if we move specifically to 1659, the year in which Oliver Cromwell died, he had personally ruled the three kingdoms as a king in all but name since 1653. The moments after Cromwell's death were tense. Everything hung in the balance. Henrietta dared not assume that this would lead to a restoration of her son to his throne, so much so that she wrote to a friend 
quote, In truth, I thought you would hear with joy the death of that wretch. Yet whether it be because my heart is so wrapped up in melancholy as to be incapable of receiving any, or that I do not as yet perceive any good advantages likely to accrue to us from it, I will confess to you that I have not felt myself in any great rejoicing, my greatest being to witness that of my friends. But nevertheless, she remained devoted to restoring her son to his throne. One month later, she seemed to be proved correct that nothing advantageous would spring from Cromwell's death. She wrote to her son, King Charles II, who was penniless in Brussels, quote, You shall find me as ready as I have ever been. We must wait for opportunities to avail ourselves of them. I assure you, I will let none slip. Not long after this, she wrote again to her son, promising not to do anything, quote, which could in any possible manner be prejudicial to you. Believe this, I beg you. But destiny seemed to be moving the king's way, and the Lord was shining his favour at long last on the exiled Stuarts. Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660. On hearing that Charles had arrived safely in England, she wrote ecstatically, quote, You may judge of my joy, and if you were torn to pieces in England with kindness, I have my share of it also in France. A stream of old royalists turned out to petition Henrietta to put a good word in with her son, and not forgetting their loyalty, she couldn't help but agree. Finally, her joy could be released. After 11 years, the restoration had come about. There could only be one reason in Henrietta's mind, the good Lord. She wrote to her sister, Quote, Le bon Dieu has looked on us in his mercy and has wrought, as one must say, a miracle in this restoration, having changed the hearts of a people in an instant from the greatest hatred to the greatest possible love. Um, 1660, um, the monarchy's restored. Um, Charles II uh, returns to his kingdoms. Um, how much influence do you think Henrietta wielded in Britain at the restoration of the monarchy and thereafter? Uh, I find this difficult to gauge. I mean, on the one hand, she was always involved and interested in politics. On the other hand, she moved from being in the centre of court to being in a secondary sphere. Um, she was present, still formidable, but no longer the intrinsically important player on the political scene. Do you think Charles II perhaps found his mother's Catholicism um, and maybe her links to the past a little bit too contentious for the the start of of his reign and for, for the three kingdoms. Yes, I think I think Charles the uh, Second understood how things were. He was a very sort of pragmatic person. He he could see how um, the winds were blowing and everything, and um, I think he knew to to keep that tone down a bit, and so. I think, you know, her Henrietta Maria's arrival in 1660, following all those years of exile, she um, she arrived with very little fanfare and it was all pretty, pretty muted. So I think that that was something to do with it. And, and she didn't stay long, did she, um, in England? Not really, no. She uh, there, was, there were a variety of reasons for that. Uh, there was this 
of course, the ever-increasing anti-Catholic sentiment, um, which was going to peak in the late 1670s and 80s, but she was long gone by then. Um, she, uh, she was concerned over Minette's frailty after childbirth. So um, she wanted to be with her daughter in for that. Um, but the main reason, I think, was her own ill health. She was simply unwell. Uh, she had been suffering from ill health for many years. Indeed, I think it stems from when she gave birth to Minette in Exeter in 1644. And the British winters were never and had never been kind to her. So I think she had problems with her lungs. Um, and, and I know a few people who, who have trouble even now in, in the winters here. They have bronchial complaints. And uh, I believe, yes, uh, Pepys, in a diary entry for the 29th of June, 1665, wrote, The Queen Mother setting out for France this day to drink bourbon waters this year, she being in a consumption, and intends not to come till winter come 12 months. So she had been living in Somerset House, and whilst Peeps and others had been under the impression that she was going to stay away for just a year, she never came back to England. And she moved back to her homeland and lived in a chateau, Colomb, which is near Paris. And a few years later, her granddaughter, the future Queen Anne, stayed with her for a couple of years for eye treatment. But it was at Colomb uh, that Henrietta Maria died from an accidental opiate overdose in September of 1669. I didn't know that uh, Queen Anne stayed with her when, when obviously when she was uh, a young girl. She had very, very bad eyesight. And uh, the uh, the best physicians were apparently in Paris. And so it was it was a good idea. She could get medical treatment and she could stay with her grandma, which is always a nice thing to do. And so you see that grandmotherly, that sort of maternal instinct and and side to her. And I think it's lovely. It's it's just lovely. It is, yeah. After after all that turmoil and all all those hard decades that she she went through, um, it's nice that she had that love of her family, isn't it? The children and grandchildren. Really important. And I think she must have been very sad about Henry. And and the deaths of her of of the children that she lost. I mean, she lost Henry, and then three months later, she lost Mary, her eldest, both from smallpox. Horrible. And and uh, of course, Elizabeth, only only so young, fourteen, is just terrible. So um, it's all sad. But then you you have that she knew that she had her grandchildren, and she knew that the line was going to continue. So. Yeah, that, that's it. You can see that uh, Charles has settled in. He's found his feet. Um, mm-hmm. Seems to have his own style and is getting on yeah. with it. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> what What do you think is is Henrietta's greatest achievement? Well, uh, well, she she was a huge part of the 17th century scene. She's and remains a, a massive part of Stuart history, politically, socially, culturally. Um, not only did she continue the Stuart line, as, as I just mentioned, that undoubtedly made her a total, I don't know, winner in, in terms of an early modern queen. I mean, that she did what what her job role was supposed to, to be, and, and so she fulfilled that. And um, 
but she also survived the civil wars. She survived poverty, and she saw her family regain their rightful place on the throne and on the political scene. So she was resilient, formidable, and I think she's just a naturally fascinating person. Okay, well, that's all of the questions that I have about Henrietta Maria. Um, so would you mind just telling me a little bit more about the books that you've written so far about the Stuart era? Yes, um, I've written six books. Um, the first one was a novella about the Duke of Monmouth and Lady Henrietta Wentworth, and it was called His Last Mistress. And um, I think it was marketed as a bit of a, a romance but it was uh, not a happily ever after, as many of your listeners would know, knowing the story of the Duke of Monmouth. So um, in, in terms of um, historical fiction, that was that's pretty much what it was and not a happy ending. And then I wrote The Stuart Vampire, which was loosely based on Henry Stuart, Duke of Gloucester. And uh, yes, he, he lived only 20 years, and I thought that was really sad. So... I I decided to give him a natural, supernatural story after that. Um, following that, I was part of an anthology called Steel and Lace, and I wrote that with other other uh, writers who write in the 17th century, and, and it was an amazing experience to be able to write with, with the likes of um, M.J. Logue and, and uh, Anna Belfrage and then... And Francine Hoer. And so it, it was lovely, lovely to be part of that. And then I got into nonfiction, which is something I, I had wanted to do since I was studying uh, history at university. Um, I had always wanted to be a historian. And uh, finally, in 2015, I was able to fully, fully get into that dream, um, which was wonderful. Uh, I got two contracts for Amberley, and I wrote The Stuarts in 100 Facts, followed by A Year in the Life of Stuart Britain. And that was that was a really great fulfillment for me. Um, then I, I um, started writing for Pen and Sword, and I wrote Sex and Sexuality in Stuart Britain for them, and that came out recently. And I'm currently working on two biographies for Pen and Sword. The first one is about Barbara Villas, who was Charles II's mistress. And the other one is about Queen Mary II. So uh, two very different ladies. Um, and uh, they're, they're like, beside my own family sphere, I've, I pretty much live with these two ladies who are very different and so that's just quite extraordinary <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine <laughs> yeah do, doing two biographies as well at the same time and flipping between these two you'll set another place for the two of them at, at lunchtime <laughs> yeah. well thanks for joining me today on cavalier cast andrea it's been great talking to you thank you so much for having me it's just so exciting to be on your podcast if you'd like to take part or view Andrea's Stuart's Saturday, you can find her on Facebook and Twitter as the 17th Century Lady. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this two-part episode about Henrietta Maria. Next episode, I'll be looking at Civil War petitions, those from maimed soldiers 
or their widows and just what we can learn from them. You can keep in touch about the podcasts by following me on Twitter at 1642author or facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks for listening. <laughs>